Praise the Lord. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God, was he. Fully are we, and in our own might are filthy, but God's pure and perfect and the greatest atonement to wash away our sins. Romans chapter 7, I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold unto sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law of my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity, the law of sin, which is in my members, O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. You may be seated. Let me go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you with thankfulness of your perfect atonement that washed away our wretchedness, our filthiness of sin. And that we are hidden in you, Lord. Because apart from your atoning sacrifice, apart from your substitutionary atonement, bearing our punishment, being our pardon, we'll be found guilty on the day of judgment. We give you glory and praise this morning. In the name of Jesus. I hope everybody's heart is full of worship today and their hearts are ready to receive the word of God with all readiness of mind. I hope every one of you are students of the word as Bereans to examine what they are hearing to be so with the word of God. Your final authority isn't Sean. Your final authority is God. And use his infallible word to be your guide today and always. The title for this message today is The Continued Inward War of Two Natures or Two Powers. Within every believer, there's two powers in them. There's two laws within them. There's two natures within them. The text we're going to focus on today is 20 through 25. And Romans 7, 20 through 25 brings to the conclusion of the seventh chapter of Romans. And as we've been stepping into the depths of Paul's soul, as he lays bare the anguish of his inner struggle, you fully see Paul expressing with complete humility how sin 
is still in him. In these verses, he unveils the grueling battle between the spirit and the flesh, a war that resonates with every believer. And as we've been witness to his raw emotion, the piercing cry of a man torn between his love for God's law that he consents to and the sin that he refuses to surrender. He feels the weight of his words, the frustration and desperation that threaten to consume him. And yet amidst the turmoil, behold the triumph of grace, the unyielding hope that anchors his soul. So, may Paul's vulnerability be your own and discover anew the power of God's mercy to transform your own struggles into a testament of his triumphant grace. So a brief summary of Romans chapter 7 up to verse 20 where we will begin. Paul has been discussing the law and its relationship to sin. He argues that the law is good, but it only serves to reveal our sin and makes us aware of our guilt. In fact, the law actually stirred up sinful desires in us. The unregenerate, what the law does to them, it does two things. It leads them to Christ. It shows them they're guilty. It shuts the mouth of pride or boasting that you can't go to heaven on your own good works or merit. You can't glorify that. It leads you to Christ. But also it can do to someone who's rebellious and doesn't desire to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says what it does. For I was alive, and referring to his unregenerate state, Paul here, for I was alive without the law once. Past tense. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. So what it does is, is it gets a sense of rebelliousness in you. It's like telling a child not to go grab a cookie from the cookie jar. But when you're not looking, the child's desire is to go to the cookie jar. Almost rebelliousness to a lot of sinners excites them. To go, like underage kids, want to go drink alcohol and party. It incites them to do drugs and do things that are against their authority. They love going against parental authority, especially the government today, where many want to be anti-law. What the law did was make us more aware of our own fleshly inclinations. Paul then uses the analogy of marriage to illustrate our relationship with the law and sin, showing how we were bound to sin until we die to the law and are joined to Christ. He concludes that sin is a powerful force that still operates in our lives, even as believers. And then we need God's grace to overcome it, which leads to verse 20. Remember, the unregenerate sinner only has one nature, influenced by one power, which sin has dominion over them because of original sin. They didn't war. They didn't have this warfare that believers have. They only had one nature, and they did that which is according to their nature. So every choice they have, they choose to do that which that, that nature desires them to do. But when you get a new nature, the spiritual nature, once you become born again by faith in Christ, you now have this battle unlike any other battle you've ever faced in your life. Inward battle. 
Verse 20. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Paul stated, it is no more I that do it. A fascinating verse. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth within him. This is a fascinating verse, as I said. You read the agony of this verse. Paul's words pierce the darkness, revealing the depth of our depravity. Sin is not always an action we choose, according to Paul, but a sinful nature that possesses us. Like a parasite, it inhabits our very being, twisting our desires, corrupting our thoughts, and manipulating our actions. We are held captive, unable to break free from, from its grasp. And yet, in this bleak landscape, a, a glimmer of hope shines through. If sin dwells in us, it is not we who do it. We are not the ones responsible for these vile deeds. In other words, the fault lies not with our weakness, but with the sin that enslaves us. A wondrous grace. Interesting. Sin will dominate you if you do not trust the Lord. You'll be fully influenced by the sin that indwells in you a nature that has its grip on you until you receive a glorified body. The only liberator is the Lord Jesus Christ. To paraphrase this verse, we see two natures. Now if I, the old nature, do that I, the new nature, it is no more I, Paul, that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. While Romans 7.20 does emphasize the role of sin in our actions, it's not intended to absolve us of any personal responsibility. There's a great danger that some have used this verse to promote dualism. Let me share briefly. We must be careful not to fall prey, as some have, because... If verse 17 and 20, to believe in what is called dualism, what dualism is taught that the body is evil and the spirit is good so that who adhere to dualism believes that they, are, they have liberty to sin by claiming they're not responsible for the sin they're doing. So some have taken this verse and went to an extreme. Their sin was the fault of their physical bodies. But for the sake of truth, there is a balance to this verse where dualism is heresy and dangerous if believed. Our Bible cons uh, constantly teaches that we are accountable for our actions and our choices. Choose whom this day who you will serve. Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 24, 1 Kings, Matthew 25, we must acknowledge our own ability in sinning and seek out forgiveness rather than blaming sin itself or in external circumstances. Romans 7.20 is meant to highlight the internal struggle we face with sin. Not excuse our sinful behavior. By acknowledging the presence of sin, 
we can better understand our need for God's grace and the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. You have to realize your own sinful nature. You have to see your own sinful depravity. It is a power. It is an influence on you more than you think. It hinders you from praying like you should. It hinders you from studying like you should. It hinders you from having a desire to go to church, not as a religious person, but a desire to go to be edified by the word, by the fellowship of those who have spiritual gifts. There's a desire to you to get part to see what gift you may have to be part of a body. To be much more than just a pew sitter. God has called believers to put on Christ. To clothe yourself in righteousness. And to practice the word. To be in his will, not just to believe in his will. May we see sin to be exceedingly sinful in our own lives and trust who alone can be the only liberator, Jesus Christ. You have to trust in him every second of the day. You have to take this battle very seriously because if you don't, you will fall short daily. Very easily can you fall short. Very easily can you fall into besetting sins. Romans 7.20 is meant to highlight the internal struggle we face with sin. It's important to interpret this verse in the context of entire passages and broader biblical narrative, which emphasizes both the reality of sin and our personal responsibility to resist it. If you don't lean on God, your flesh will take over. You're not responsible in the sense that you have a sinful nature, a desire to do that which is against God. You're responsible in regards how you fight your sinful nature by putting your faith and trust in the Lord to overcome it. You're more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. You have victory in Christ. You have the spirit that now dwells within you. Ignite that. Put it on. Fight the good fight. Be a pilgrim on, on this world. This earth isn't your home. Your home is in heaven. Christian, and if you're a true Christian, you desire to live according to his will to be like Christ. May we proclaim Christ even in uncomfortable circumstances. May we be like Christ, even out of our own comfort zone. God calls you out of your comfort zone. Do you think Jonah wanted to go to Nineveh? No. Peter denied Christ three times. It was an uncomfortable situation. Jonah was in an uncomfortable situations, but I tell you, God puts his people in uncomfortable situations. The only comfort you have isn't your circumstances, but is the Holy Spirit. 
who is your comforter, which puts you in the uncomfortable circumstance. It makes no sense to have the Holy Spirit as your peace. It makes no sense to have the Holy Spirit as your comforter if you're in a position where everything's peaceful. No, the truth you share brings adverse, brings a hostile environment. It brings the world to be against what you believe to be true. The enemy will rise up. If you live a godly life, if you proclaim truth, you will get your own town. You will get everyone around you who does not believe in Christ to be against you some way of some sort. You call men to repentance. You're much more than just making friends. It's deeper than that. You're not called just to make friends with the world. Bible warns in James 4, 4, ye adulteresses and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. He will be a friend of the world is God's enemy. If you are around the world so much, it will affect you and compromise your faith. You should be around people that believe in God. You should be around people who are encouraging you to live holy, not discouraging you, not influencing you to sin. Be around people to influence you to study, to pray, to go to church, to tell others about Christ. That's the best influence that you should be around. Why would you not want to be around that? I have seen countless people in my life who have foul prey to apostasy. A good friend of mine was influenced by sin in this world that it took over his life. That he doesn't go to church, he doesn't study, he doesn't pray like he should. His fellowship then became with the world. It affected him spiritually. I know a young pastor's son who at first showed he had a desire for the Lord. But he met a girl, an unsaved girl, who influenced him to sin. That desire, that sinful nature, desires to do that which is against God. Don't feed it. And eventually he's not in church anymore. And his choices are according to his sinful nature, but not according to the will of God. Be careful that you're not influenced by fleshly desires. Trust me, your sinful nature and its inclination is to draw you away from God. Let's continue. In verse 18, Paul states, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Paul here ascribes that his flesh is part of himself. Just as he says in verse 14, I am carnal. He is carnal and wretched on the account, on only his account of a sinful nature. What Paul isn't doing is saying that he's the worst believer who's living a life of sin. He isn't the chiefest among sinners in the sense of that he's the one out of all the sinners in the world committing the most crimes against God. That's not what he's saying. 
So we must be careful to understand here he's referring to his sinful nature, not his spiritual nature, not his new identity, which is in Christ. He is carnal and wretched on his account, properly interpreted according to his sinful nature. Romans 7.21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So in verse 1, Paul restates the conflict that he has been describing in verses 14 through 20. The conflict is that there are two powers pulling Paul in polar opposites directions. He will start in verse 21 with one power, then conclude with the second power. Let's talk about the first power. The beginning of the first 21, he says, when I would do good, that is the first, is that uh, that, that first power, because he is a new nature. He has this new nature that has new desires to obey the law of God. There is a part of Paul that has a desire to pursue holiness, to deny himself, to take up his cross, and follow after Christ. That's what Jesus said. If anyone who's willing to come after me has to face three types of willingness. Deny yourself. In Greek, simply means to no longer associate with yourself. It's not about your will anymore. Then he says, take up your cross. Was it, and the cross was, in Christ's day, was an instrument of death, suffering. So this new desire, this new will, this new nature, gives us a new desire to pursue holiness, to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow him. If you're not willing to suffer for the name of Christ, then you're none of his. You're not a disciple. That's what Jesus said. Paul has a strong inward compulsion to please God. Do you? That's the first power. Then there's a second power. Paul states at the second part of verse 21 that evil is present with me. The verb is present means to lie beside. The idea is that sin is crouching, lying in wait, ready to spring at any moment. It is like a, li a lion lying in the, ta uh, the tall weeds, ready to devour you as you walk by. God said to Cain in Genesis 4, 7, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. If you don't do well, sin is ready to pounce on you. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. The sin that was present or lieth at the door for Cain, is still lieth at the door for you. Not just for you and me. It's ready to spring forth and devour us when we least expect it. This is the first operated power. Well, sorry, the second operated power that is present within the believer that Paul describes. The power of two wills. Evil is present and the good desire are both inside of Paul. This is a conflict that is raging like a civil war within him. 
He never outgrows this conflict by being a Christian for a longer period of time. Here, Paul is a mature believer writing this. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, it would have been at one of the strongest points in his Christian walk. He's on his third missionary journey, yet Paul still, still feels this tug of war on the inside. The same conflict between evil and good is still being played out in every Christian today. The inward civil war between the two natures, old and new, is a reality that every Christian faces. If we don't take this struggle seriously, we risk being complacent in our sin. You will literally be walking a defeated life. If you don't take this seriously, you risk failing to grow in holiness. You'll be a novice. Never growing. Are you okay with that? If you don't take this seriously, you risk missing out on the transformative, transformative power of the gospel. Your testimony doesn't glorify God presently. What kind of testimony do you have if you have a testimony that says, yeah, I got saved, but you haven't been saved. Saved from sin, walking in newness, a beholding, all things have become new. I used to walk this way, but now I'm walking this way. There's a new course of direction, a new desire that you didn't have before. When a person isn't walking like they should, when they name the name of Christ, what you do is you proclaim the atonement to be ineffective. You proclaim the atonement to have no effect whatsoever. Because you claim you believe in Jesus doesn't mean you are a true believer in Jesus. Evidence of a true believer, which is thoroughly through the New Testament, is marked in servitude, marked in a desire for God, emptying of self to be about his will. May we all conform to that. May we all be conformed to the likeness of Christ, not to the likeness of any other religion in this world, not to the likeness of me, not in the likeness of what this culture wants you to become, right? The, the, the world, the American culture for women wants you to, you to be a feminist, anti-men. And they want the culture of America is wanting men to be sissified, not leaders in the home, not a head over their wives and children. Oh, this world truly does not know what love is. Oh, this world truly does not know God at all. Nor his word, and they're doing everything to attack God. Remember, sin lieth at the door. If we don't take this, this seriously, if we don't take this struggle seriously, You'll be an ineffective witness 
for Christ. How effective are you if you live as if the gospel has no power to save you? How effective are you to tell others you shouldn't commit adultery if you're committing adultery? How effective are you to tell others to stop getting drunk if you yourself are being drunk? We should always examine ourselves in the light of the word of God to be more like Christ and a greater testimony towards this world of what Christ does. Christ changes sinners and transforms them to saints to walk in newness of life, holiness, and uprightness before him. We need to be taking this inward war seriously. Recognizing the ongoing presence of sin in our lives. Recognize that. You need to take this inward war seriously by engaging in a regular self-examination and confession as Paul humble, humbles himself and he's not afraid to admit it. He's not afraid. Humble Paul isn't afraid to express his own battles over this inward warfare. That is healthy to talk about. It is healthy to admit, listen, we struggle. I struggle with sin. You struggle with sin. Paul is emptying himself, truly humbling himself and sharing this. We need to take this inward war seriously by seeking the empowerment of grace of God through prayer and scripture. Striving for holiness and obedience in every area of life. Seeking fellowship and accountability with fellow believers. That's why we have church. What kind of Christian are you if you don't desire a church? You're totally outside of God's will. You don't even know most of the New Testament. I know you don't read the Bible. If you say, well, I'm a Christian, I don't want to be part of church. There's people in the church that hurt me. All kinds of bad testimonies and bad reasons for you not to go to church. Because you're allowing them to become your authority of you going or not going to church. Instead, when the Bible tells you to go, what was the purpose of the church? Ephesians 4.11, for the perfecting of the saints. Spiritual gifts are not made for the world, right? Spiritual gifts are not made for the world. A pastor isn't for the unsaved. The teacher isn't for the unsaved. Though he is called with a spiritual gift to do the work of an evangelist, but the spiritual gift is for the perfecting and the maturing of the local body. Church is important. In fact, Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. He discipled disciples and they first became apostles, sent them out to plant local churches, to teach them up, to make disciples. We need to recognize the ongoing presence of sin in our lives by striving holiness and obedience in every area of life, seeking fellowship and accountability with fellow believers, as I've stated, allowing the word of God through the operation of the local church to edify you and mature you, your walk. James 1, through 25 encourages Christians to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Are you a doer of the word? James says, 
Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not saying true salvation is on the basis of faith plus works. He's saying true identity of true saving faith, true faith produces Holy Spirit-driven faithfulness. Spiritual works. Not human responsibility and merit. 2 Timothy 2.15 commands diligent in studying and handling the word of truth. Titus 2.10 shows the importance of living out the doctrine of God our Savior. I mean, it's important to not just know who Jesus Christ is, but to know doctrine. As I mean, it's amazing how many times you hear people, it's like, well, that's divisive. We shouldn't talk about those things. That's like the worst attitude to have. It's like saying, well... Only the verses that have to do with Christ's gospel is important. But all these other verses that have to do with doctrinal things are not important. No, the whole counsel of the word of God is important. Colossians 3.16 emphasizes the value of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. How important that is that we have an operation of to edify one another with fellowship with songs of praise, with spiritual songs. In John 4, 23 through 24, highlights the importance of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. You don't just worship the Lord in your mind and emptied of self. That was me when I was un unregenerate. I believed in God, but I had an unrepentant heart. I didn't see my own sin before him to be exceedingly sinful. Then God, in 2005, I came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I saw my own sin to be exceedingly sinful, and I repented. Romans 7.22 now. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Here's the truth, and I want to share briefly. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The spiritual nature does what? Paul's saying his new nature is to delight the law of God. So I have a real concern for believers who never struggle with sin is that they may be deceiving themselves about their true spiritual condition. Like I said before, true believers know evidence of other believers. Jesus said, you know them by their fruit. He who has not the spirit of Christ is none of his. And the Bible says, test all spirits to see if they are of God. You'll know this by studying the word of God and, it, and you allow it to become in your life and you, you, you see it and you're living for God and you question if someone isn't really serving the Lord correctly, you'll know by the word of God, right? You'll know, well, Sean, you're not doing like what you should be doing and you should encourage me. Or if you're doing something, we should be encouraging one another to live according to God's will. I mean, that's love. 
This verse states, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, indicating that a true believer should have a deep-seated desire to obey God and please God. Now, if someone claims to be a believer but never struggles with sin, it may suggest that they are not truly aware of their own sinful nature or that they are not generally striving to live according to God's standards. This could indicate a lack of spiritual growth, a shallow understanding of their own sinfulness, or even a false profession of faith. Dear church, let the words of Romans chapter 7, 22 pierce your soul. For I delight of the law of God after the inward man. But do you? Do you truly delight in the law of God? Or is your heart still captive to the whims of your flesh? Search your heart. Is the desire to obey God's word truly your greatest longing? Or are you still entangled in the web of sin's deceit? The Apostle Paul is agonized over his own sinful nature. He's bothered by it. Do you, in a similar way, sorrow over your own transgressions? Or do you dismiss them as no big deal? Let the conviction power of the Holy Spirit weigh heavily upon you. Are you a slave to sin or a servant to the Most High God? The choice is yours, but know that the wages of sin is death. And the only grace of God is in the person of Christ to save you and set you free from sin. Christ sets men from free from the shackles of sin. Not, not only its condemnation power, but its dominion. If God then is truly your number one in your life, it will manifest outwardly in various ways. Your priorities in values and decisions will reflect your commitment to him, you'll likely be more inclined to share your faith with others, serve and love others selflessly, live with integrity and honesty, seek holiness and righteousness, and trust him in times of trials. Your relationship with God will be evident in your words and actions and choices, making him visible to those around you. Apostle Paul delights in the law and the inward man as Psalms 1, the blessed man delights in the law, and the evidence that this blessed man delights in the law is that he meditates on the law day and night. He's consumed with the law of God. He recognizes that the book that we have in hand today isn't just a, a book penned by man, but the book that we read today is the inspired by God. As men had pen in hand, they were moved by the Holy Spirit, the very word of God today. No other book is inspired by God. That should mean something to you as it means something to me. Throughout the day, the blessed man's mind is on the law of the Lord. And with that mind, let me share something. It is not an underestimate to say that many Christian churches and Bible college seminaries and church associations have fallen prey to what some have called 
new Calvinism. Many are now also embracing what has come to be known as NCT, New Covenant Theology. As Christians, we all believe in New Covenant Theology. We all believe in the New Covenant, also called the New Testament, which is Christ shed blood for the remissions of his people's sins, Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the many of the remissions of sins. And Hebrews 10 talks about, through 1 through 10, the apostle explains that with the coming of the New Covenant, the sacrificial law, uh, the ceremonial law, has now passed because Christ, who being the substance of those things, has now fulfilled the great debt on behalf of his people. It is not an underestimate to say that many Christians, churches, and Bible college seminaries and church associations have fallen prey. As Christians, we all believe in the new covenant, but it's vitally important that we understand that the law of the moral law, God's standard, his righteousness still is applied today, where some are now saying that the moral law doesn't apply today. That's one of the reasons why you go to the Old Testament and show certain things. They'll say, we're on the new covenant. Those certain passages, those principles cannot be carried over to the new covenant. Quite dangerous because this new covenant theology is antinomianism at heart, fully. New Covenant theology positions vary, they do, but essentially it is the notion that with the coming of the shed blood of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, have no reference to or are in no way the enduring standard of righteousness for the believers to glorify God. Let me first be clear that the word of God does clearly state that we are not under the law, but under grace. Remember, though, outwardly, the Ten Commandments was written in, ten, uh, was written in two stone tablets, but now it is inwardly written where? In our hearts, right? So this moral standard is written on our heart. You can't do away with that. That's why we know inwardly, that's why the world, they all appeal to the law of God. They just suppress it. They know stealing is wrong. They know coveting is wrong. They do know adultery is wrong. They know killing and murder is wrong. How so? Because there is an inward inclination. It's truly wrought by God. Let me share. Firstly, be clear that the word of God does clearly state that we are not under the law, but under grace. But the same apostle and the same epistle in the word of God states that the law of God is not made void to the believer. In Romans chapter 3, verse 31, it says this. Sorry, verse uh, 11, forgive me. In chapter 3 in Romans. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. When God says, God forbid, or far it be from God, he is expressing strong disapproval or disallowance of something. It's a way of emphasizing that something is not in line with his will or character. Essentially, he's saying 
no way or absolutely not to a particular idea or situation. The phrase is used to convey his displeasure or to distance himself from something that is not consistent with his new nature or plan. God's grace does not lead the believer to transgress God's law, but rather the grace in the gospel leads us to frame our lives by the law. Thus the gospel establishes the law in the believer's heart and life. Samuel Bolton, 1601 to 1654, wrote that the law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. Throughout the age of Christendom, it appears that there has always been a practical antinomian, which is which the epistle of Jude warns about, that the, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness in Jude 4. New covenant theology is not a new heresy, but an old one and cloaked under a new name. It can also lead to a false gospel. Without the moral law of God, they can be establishing no basis, no warrant or authority for defining what sin is. What is sin? We don't need a dictionary to help us because 1 John defines what sin is in verse 4, which states in 1 John 3, 4, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. That's what sin is. God established the law. You sin, you'll go against what God has established. With that said, neither can there be a measuring of what holiness, sanctification, of righteous standards are without the moral law of God. There's no fear of God without the law of God. The word of God teaches that sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness refers to a state of rebellion, disregard for God's law and commandments. Where one knowingly and willing commits sinful acts without repentance or remorse. It's a condition of spiritual defiance, rejecting God's authority and refusing to, to submit to his moral principles. And I, in my personal studies, I have concerns that the New Covenant theology, NCT, has led to the development of, fee, of three false doctrines. One, antinomianism. Two, dispensationalism. And three, cheap grace. Let me address these issues and how they deviate from scriptural truth to potentially harm our understanding of God's word. Some pro proponents of NCT may unwillingly slide into antinomianism, implying that God's grace nullifies his law. But Jesus himself refutes this in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, saying, think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. Don't even allow that to think. Don't let that to go in your mind. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. And James reminds us in James 2, 14 through 26, that faith without works is dead. So we see that God's grace doesn't dismiss our responsibility to obey his commandments. Rather, it empowers us to live according to his will. True grace through faith empowers us. Antinomianism now. The belief that moral law is not applicable to believers that's what it is. It can lead to several dangers. 
licentiousness with a sense of without any sense of moral responsibility individuals may feel free to live immoral lives disregarding biblical teachings on sin and righteousness there's a disregard for uh, um, sanctification and a misunderstanding of grace antinomianism can distort the meaning of grace reducing it to a mere acquittal rather than a transformative life changing force by refuting antinomianism you can emphasize the importance of living a life marked by obedience holiness and servitude to god's law the biggest problem we have today is that many believers are becoming antinomian it's apostasy from the true gospel it's anti-repentant view i mean i can go on for hours on this but i won't don't worry A truth I'll probably return to in uh, John 8. The anti-repentant view. Oh, it's strong. It's so many people. I can't even count and count. There's so many churches all around I can name for you. That if you ask the pastor, do you believe that sinners need to repent from sin? They change that saying, no, they just need to repent from unbelief. So reality is no repentance. You just got to believe intellectually that God existed. And the death, burial, and resurrection, and you're good to go. No heart needs to see their own sin to turn from it by faith in Christ. Many are now strongly adhering to that form of dispensationalism. The biggest problem today is that they're turning the grace of God into a license to sin. Cheap grace refers to the idea that one can receive salvation without genuine repentance, surrender, or commitment to follow Christ. Antinomians and promotes and promoters of easy believism, another word. So antinomianism is another word for easy believism. That might downplay the importance of repentance from sin, viewing it as an unnecessary or just legalistic. However, this undermines the transformative power of grace reducing it to a mere intellectual essence rather than a life-changing encounter with God. True grace, on the other hand, convicts us from sin, leads us to repentance, and empowers us to live a life of obedience and loving service. Repentant, rejecting repentance from sin and embracing a cheap grace or easy believism gospel is a false gospel because it undermines the gravity of sin and its separation from God. It minimizes the significance of Christ's sacrifice and cost of discipleship. It fails to, to produce genuine transformation and fruit of repentance. It misleads people into thinking they are saved without actual conversion. It distorts the biblical, biblical gospel, leading people away from the truth and salvation. The false gospel can lead to a false sense of security, perpetual sin, and ultimate prevent people from experiencing the true grace and salvation that comes from a genuine relationship with God through faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's very important to, in Romans chapter 10, which a truth that we'll get to soon, confess with your mouth, Jesus as Savior? No. Confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus. Very important. Believe with thine mind? No. Believe with thine heart that he's raised from the dead, and thou shalt be saved. 
Jesus Christ is Lord isn't a title, it's a definitive term of authority. Is Jesus Christ your Lord, whom you confess and believe, not with your mind, but with your heart? That he's raised from the dead, and if you do this very day, thou shalt be saved. William Booth stated, the founder of Salvation Army, the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be a religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. How true that is. You can't receive forgiveness without repentance. Repent for the remissions of sins. You can't get your sins removed until you first repent. Verse 23, But I see another law of my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity, the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul is describing the internal struggle, as we've been talking about, between his redeemed mind and his sinful flesh. The law of sin refers to the lingering corruption of sin that remains in believers after they've been regenerated. This corruption is a constant force that wars against the law of Paul's mind, which is in his new nature, recreated in the image of Christ. Paul is not describing his pre-conversion experience, but rather an ongoing struggle that all believers face. The captivity he speaks of is not a return to the state of condemnation, but rather an ongoing battle to mortify sin and live according to the Spirit. This verse expresses the importance of doctrine of sanctification, whereby believers are progressively made holy through the work of the Spirit, even as they are still wrestle with indwelling sin. You will find familiar language with Paul in Galatians 5.17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. If you walk in the flesh, you'll be dominated by sin. And you cannot do the things that you would. Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Here Paul expresses his deep frustra uh, frustration and anguish over the ongoing struggle with sin in his life. He feels trapped in a body of death, which refers to his mortal body that is still subject to sin and death. Paul's emotional honesty, we see. Know that Paul's opening expresses his distress and despair, showing us that it's okay to acknowledge our own struggles and emotions before God and others. The already not yet tension, Paul, is already redeemed, yet he still experiences the not yet expects of salvation where sin and death still hold sway. The longing for deliverance. Paul yearns for freedom from the body of death. Echoing our own desires for release from sinful nature's grip. This verse invites us to reflect on the ongoing struggles with sin. Our longing for redemption and our hope we have in Christ's ultimate victory over death and sin. First and last verse, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord 
So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul offers powerful insight. He acknowledges that his mind, his redeemed self, serves the law of God, indicating a desire to obey God's will. However, his flesh, his sinful nature, still serves the law of sin, indicating a continual struggle within him. This verse highlights the two natures of the believer, with the mind and flesh in constant conflict. Paul uses of I myself, or it is no longer I, emphasizes that the idea that our old self has been crucified with Christ, our new self is being conformed to his image. The thanksgiving to God in this verse is through Jesus Christ our Lord underscores the reality that our salvation and sanctification are solely due to his grace and his merit, not our own at all. This verse reminds us that as believers, we are simultaneously saints, but with the sinful nature alone is your, you're a sinner. And our growth in holiness is a lifelong process of mortifying sin and living according to the Spirit. Conclusion. In Romans 7, Paul has taken us on a journey through the struggles of the Christian life. He has shown us that even as believers, we still grapple with sin and its effect on our lives. Through his personal testimony, Paul has demonstrated the ineffectiveness of trying to overcome sin through our own efforts and has pointed us to the only hope for deliverance, Jesus Christ. In Romans 7, 20 through 25, Paul has highlighted the, the two natures of the believer, with our mind serving the law of God and our flesh serving the law of Son. Yet, even in this struggle, Paul gives thanks to God through Jesus Christ, his Lord, acknowledging that our salvation and sanctification are solely due to his grace and merits. And as we move to Romans chapter 8 next week, we will discover the glorious truth that though the Spirit of Christ we are no longer condemned to live under the dominion of sin. We will learn about the liberating power of the Spirit who sets us free to live according to God's will and empower us to mortify sin. So let us press on in faith, knowing that our struggles with sin are not in vain and that the triumphant life of Christ is presently in our victory fully is when we die or when Christ comes back. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time that we're able to dive into your word today and reflect on your holiness. Help us to see our own sinful nature in a way that we trust in you more, Lord. We give you glory and praise. I pray your word has touched all our hearts here. We give you glory and praise. Amen. So th what is the hymn? Forgive me. 727. 727, thank you.